This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. They're sprouting like weeds across the GTA. With the number of medical marijuana dispensaries skyrocketing, Mayor John Tory is threatening a crackdown while some say a pharmacy is the right place to go for medicinal cannabis. Today I'll be joined by pharmacist Billy Chung. Plus, if you have a loved one suffering from dementia in a nursing home, chances are they're on antipsychotic medication. But a new report finds these drugs may actually worsen the symptoms they're meant to alleviate. Today I'll talk to Kay Phillips from the Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It was a powerful reunion. This week, Holocaust survivor Marcel Levy came face-to-face with U.S. veteran Sid Schaffner, the man who saved his life 71 years ago. Schaffner was part of a troop that helped liberate thousands of prisoners in the Dachau concentration camp in 1945. Marcel Levy was one of those prisoners, the last remaining survivor of his family. It was an emotional moment when the two men met again this week. They embraced and kissed each other on the cheek. Levy was only a teenager when he was saved by Schaffner, and since he had no family or place to go, he was invited to come along with the troop as their dishwasher. The two became friends, but parted ways after the war ended. Schaffner was flown to an Israeli military base for the reunion, organized by the Friends of the Israel Defense Forces. The cancer drug used to treat former U.S. President Jimmy Carter after a melanoma spread to his brain is showing remarkable results. A study shows Keytruda has helped some patients survive for at least three years, where until recently they faced dismal chances of living more than a few months. Keytruda is one of a new class of genetically engineered antibody-based medicines called immunotherapy because they harness the body's immune system to attack the cancer. Melanoma is the deadliest form of skin cancer. We talk a lot about what makes a good death. Well, what about this? Jane Little, the longtime double bassist for the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, passed away at the age of 87 after collapsing on stage during a rousing performance of There's No Business Like Show Business. Jane held the record for the longest professional tenure with a single orchestra, which she set just earlier this year with a performance on February 4th. That was 71 years to the day since her first concert with the orchestra's forerunner, the Atlanta Youth Symphony Orchestra. She was just 16 at the time. Jane spent a lifetime with the orchestra and clearly died doing what she loved. 
An unnamed Zoomer couple from Poland has become an internet sensation after dancing up a storm at London's Fabric Nightclub. The pair in their late 70s hit the dance floor last Sunday night and were still at it well into Monday morning. The nightlife legends knocked back two shots of tequila to start but spent the rest of the night dancing and drinking tea. They finally departed at 5 a.m. in a cab paid for by the club. They had planned to leave at 6 a.m. and take the subway. A Facebook post featuring a picture of the couple has been shared around the world. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a common strategy in long-term care homes, putting seniors on antipsychotic drugs to keep them under control. The Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement decided to see what happened when these residents were taken off those meds. The results were dramatic. Fewer falls, less aggressive behavior, and resistance to treatment. I talked with Dr. Kay Phillips, one of the people responsible for this trial. We were focused on residents who did not have a diagnosis of psychosis, but were on antipsychotic medications. Right now across Canada, it's quite a phenomenon. One in four residents in long-term care are on antipsychotics without a diagnosis of psychosis. And we particularly saw quite a bit of need when it comes to dementia residents. Uh, About 62% of residents in long-term care do have dementia. And uh, we know from the research and the evidence that mixing antipsychotics Psychotics and dementia has a number of adverse effects and safety issues that need to be uh, dealt with. So why would uh, they have been prescribed these things? When you have conditions such as dementia, there are symptoms that go along with it. Confusion, wandering, resistance to care, and and sometimes aggressive or inappropriate behaviors. So what's happening in the long-term care is is there's a number of challenging behaviors that need to be addressed and, and care providers returning to medications, particularly antipsychotics, to try and deal with it. As opposed to? As opposed to some of the uh, patient-centered or shall I say person-centered care approaches that healthcare organizations across the province and across the country um, employ. So these focus on the physical, the intellectual, the emotional, and the social and cultural needs of our residents. Is it because the long-term care homes are understaffed? Or are they just trying to uh, drug their residents as opposed to uh, having to have staff care for them? Is that what's going on? Well, there's a number of issues at play. There's certainly uh, a stress that's on the floor in terms of time and the amount of caregiving that uh, frontline providers have to play. There's also some, um, I guess, rethinking how care is provided, where a part of our work was trying to bring together the teams, the care teams that are needed to provide the best um, the best quality and experience of care. So it involves bringing together the nurses, the physicians, the pharmacists, the personal support workers, and the families to actually understand the resident, understand what's causing their challenging behaviors, and what are some of the non-pharmacological approaches that can be used. Is what you're trying to get at that a lot of these people never get the prescription in the first place or they're monitored to see how it's working? We're we're trying to ensure that 
for those who are on the prescriptions, that they at the very first level that we understand whether or not it's appropriate for them to be on it. And then secondly, we're trying to get to the heart of where we can, yes, certainly reducing and discontinuing their use. We know as an example, as a part of our results, that 54% of our residents as a part of this work um, were discontinued and reduced. And with that, we saw a 20% decrease in falls because when you're on antipsychotics, you're often actually drowsy and, and there's an increased risk of falls. We know How? that falls leads to a increase in use of ER and in hospitalization. So there's a number of downstream effects to all of it. You also saw a decrease in some of the behavior that the medication was supposed to stop. Can you tell me about that? So 20% decrease in, uh, in, in verbally and, and physically abusive behaviors. We saw uh, resistance of care go down as well. But not only that, we heard qualitatively that the families and the staff had better care experiences. When they started to take the time to actually provide care that included that personal touch um, and, and took the time to really understand what some of the, the, the needs are of their residents. I'm reading your stats here and said the antipsychotics were discontinued for 36% and significantly reduced for 18%. So Mm -hmm. that means they were not just inappropriately prescribed, but also over-prescribed. That's right. What exactly do you mean? What replaces these drugs? What replaces these drugs are approaches that really get to the heart of the physical needs, the intellectual and emotional needs of the residents. So as an example, we have different recreational therapies, um, ensuring physical activity uh, so that the nervous system is at its optimal state. Um, we There's techniques for, for frontline staff, for nurses and personal support workers to be trained in when it comes to how to approach and how to speak to residents with dementia as to not, for instance, startle them, uh, to think about their meal planning. Uh, is a resident agitated because they actually prefer eating earlier than when the, the, the typical time of mealtime is. What would you like to happen now? Uh, we would like to see increased use of medication reviews and ongoing monitoring to really make sure that the right treatments are in place for our seniors. And at the end of the day, we want to, we want to see that families have better experiences with their loved ones in the homes and that we can get to the heart of some of the cost savings that can go along with this medication reduction. Uh, how much cost can you save? In five years' time, we know that we could reach 35,000 residents across the country if it were scaled. We know that we could uh, eliminate 25,000 um, antipsychotic medication prescriptions and essentially get to the heart of $200 million in savings in, in direct healthcare cost savings. Okay. Kay Phillips, thanks so much. Oh, thank you for your time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Kay Phillips is with the Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Speaking of drugs, the use of medical marijuana has risen dramatically here in Canada. In Toronto alone, there are now almost 100 marijuana dispensaries. Coming up, I'll talk pot with pharmacist Billy Chung. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. They seem to have mushroomed overnight. 
Here in the Toronto area, dozens of medical marijuana dispensaries have opened even though they are still illegal and the mayor has threatened a crackdown. They are moving to establish their businesses before the government liberalizes the laws. But now some pharmacists say they should be the gatekeepers for medicinal cannabis. I chatted with pharmacist Billy Chung of PharmaSave. From a pharmacy and pharmacist perspective, uh, there is uh, growing support, and and I'm speaking specifically on medicinal uh, right now, is that uh, growing support that accessing that as one of the channels is through your pharmacist and your pharmacy uh, makes a lot of sense. I think your pharmacist, if you're dealing with them with your other medications, uh, from a pharmacy perspective, they have the infrastructure to manage and handle uh, from a security perspective and so forth forth, the, the actual supply chain. I mean, we have mechanisms in place to, to get the medicines to people. And you can also then have uh, a healthcare professional to look after your overall um, medicinal needs, as well as the therapeutic uh, effects from having been prescribed medical marijuana, possibly with your other medications as well, right? So we think that there is definitely an opportunity here for a pharmacist to have a role. Do you think that this is a kind of unfair competition from the dispensaries that are getting their facts on the ground established in this gray time? I'm, I'm not sure I would look at it from perspective of unfair competition. I think I would look at it more from the basis of uh, safety and equality and, and, and where, uh, where should people be getting it currently, where we know the sources and there's some controls in place, right? Uh, again, I, I don't know where these dispensaries are accessing their medical marijuana from. Another argument for these dispensaries is that, um, uh, this is what somebody says, the people who work in them are probably more familiar with the product and would know (laughs) about its effects more than pharmacists who are maybe just reading up on it. From a therapeutic perspective, a pharmacologic perspective, the the science behind it and the drug interactions, and you look at the education that a pharmacist receives in terms of uh, how chemicals respond and interact within the body, um, that expertise is there with the pharmacist, uh, likely beyond what just simply just maybe using marijuana would provide. And so what, what I'm suggesting is the pharmacists do have a much broader frame of reference and knowledge than simply just the one item. And when we're talking about medications that people are taking, of which marijuana would be one of these medicinal pieces, that's something that we need to consider the overall healthy piece. Would you say that when it comes to medicinal marijuana, would most of the patients or customers for this be uh, Zoomers? I'm aware that how it can help in people of all ages and uh, Zoomers included, right? And and when you look at, you know, one of the pieces that it helps with is like pain relief and, and, and so forth. And there's other categories that come up that are potentials for uh, medicinal marijuana as well. I think we're going to see more and more down the road uh, when, when some of this research really comes into play. Aside from pain, what do you think it would be good for? sleep disorders. Um, I've heard of fibromyalgia. There's a whole host of different types of uh, conditions that are there. And uh, I'm going to be looking at studying into this a little bit more because we're going to be looking at developing some initiatives that are to help to educate our pharmacists even deeper with this too. So um, I think it's gonna, we're going to see more of it down the road. 
for now, obviously, it, you know, pain relief is one of the main things. Now, you mentioned drug interactions. What do you know about possible drug interactions with marijuana? Because if we're talking about Zoomers, many of them are already on multiple prescriptions. And that's one of the things where I think as a pharmacist, you might be able to see as we really develop into this category is where we look at making sure that those types of things don't happen. I think the main under, uh, one that I would bring up would be the whole central nervous system suppression component where marijuana can have that same effect as some of the sedatives and, and other uh, medications out there that can suppress the CNS system, right? So it's, uh, you've got to, there are some considerations in terms of just even dosage of maybe your medications or other medications or maybe how the marijuana is dosed as well. So there will be some considerations around uh, the drug interaction piece. Can you uh, be a little more specific about what kind of drugs you're talking about? And uh, So example would be like, you know, other drugs that may make you drowsy, right? And it's, it would be very similar to uh, when certain people take certain medications and then they're advised not to drink alcohol, right? Alcohol also has a suppressing effect. Uh, marijuana has a similar type of a suppressing effect that can happen too. So that interaction may require some extra precautions or adjustments in the dosage on uh, or one or the other. I think there's a lot of opportunity here. I think uh, we need to overcome the stigma that uh, may exist in some cases, um, but uh, that the research and really getting to better understand will really open up another opportunity here. It's, I mean, it's a plant. It's a herb. You'll take a look at a lot of other t- uh, natural products out there, right? And we, we're still learning to understand those too. So uh, I don't think it's something that we can discount in terms of what types of uh, things it can help with. Okay. Billy Chung from PharmaSave, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks, Libby. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. I've been speaking with pharmacist Billy Chung. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. We'll take a quick break and then return to celebrate the 70th birthday of musician, actress, and fashion icon Cher. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. It's time for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. A new production of Streetcar Named Desire stars the X-Files' Gillian Anderson as Blanche Dubois. Tennessee Williams' classic is on stage at St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn, New York. In San Francisco, Ars Minerva, the fledgling opera organization, is staging the Amazons in the Fortunate Isles, an opera that has not been performed since its premiere in 1679. It's at the Marines Memorial Theatre. To London, England, where there's a new version of Lawrence of Arabia introducing a new generation to T.E. Lawrence, an artist and man of action, which thrilled audiences when Peter O'Toole had the title role. Lawrence After Arabia is at the Hampstead Theatre. And Breaking Stones, 1963 to 1965, a band on the brink of superstardom, is a new exhibition documenting the years when the Rolling Stones first emerged from the British music scene. It's at the Edward Planting Gallery in Amsterdam. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This week, Sherilyn Sarkeesian better known just as Cher, celebrated her 70th birthday. Cher first gained popularity in 1965 as one half of the folk rock husband-wife duo Sonny and Cher. 
But it wasn't long before she went on to become a successful solo artist, leading actress, and fashion icon. Musically, she's released a number of hit singles, including Bang Bang, Gypsies, Tramps and Thieves, Half-Breed, Dark Lady, and Believe. In the 1970s, she became a television personality with the Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour and later the variety show Cher. At the same time, she emerged as a fashion trendsetter by wearing elaborate outfits on the programs. As an actress, Cher received critical acclaim for her performances in films like Silkwood, Mask, and Moonstruck, the last of which won her the Academy Award for Best Actress. Right now, we'll travel back to 1965 and hear the song that started it all for Cher. Here she is, along with Sonny Bono, singing I've Got You, Babe. That was Sonny and Cher with I've Got You, Babe. Cher celebrated her 70th birthday this week. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer Moses Snymer. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director John Vandriel. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.